who will there read his account of Christ's resurrection. And as you're turning to it, you may be interested to know that much of what John has to tell us in this chapter is unique to John's portrayal of the resurrection. The uh, particular appearances that um, he tells us of are not recounted in the other Gospels, and uh, those which are told in the other Gospels are not repeated by John. So it's a very unique um, recounting of the resurrection. Are the rest of you getting as much feedback and echo from this as I am? Thank you, David. Okay, John chapter 20. Hear now God's word. Now on the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, while it was yet dark, unto the tomb, and seeth the stone taken away from the tomb. She runneth therefore, and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and the other disciple, and they went toward the tomb, and they ran both together, and the other disciple outran Peter, and came first to the tomb, and stooping and looking in, he seeth the linen cloths lying, yet entered he not in. Simon Peter therefore also cometh, following him, and entered into the tomb, and he beholdeth the linen cloths lying, and the napkin that was upon the head, not lying with the linen cloths, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then entered in therefore the other disciple also, who came first to the tomb, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again unto their own home. But Mary was standing without at the tomb, weeping. So as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she beholdeth two angels in white, standing, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. When she had thus said, she turned herself back, and beholdeth Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where they hath laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turneth herself, and saith unto him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus saith to her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended unto the Father, but go unto my brethren, and say to them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene cometh and telleth the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and they that had said these things unto her. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had said this, he showed unto them his hands and his side. The disciples therefore were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus therefore said to them again, Peace be unto you, as the Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Whosoever sins ye forgive, they are forgiven unto them. Whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. 
But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Jesus cometh, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and see my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and put it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. Many other signs, therefore, did Jesus in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye may have life in his name. And thus far the reading of God's word. This morning I want to speak to you for just a few minutes about the concept of a living Savior. And so doing, I'm bringing together two different ideas. Uh, one, that of a Savior, and the other, the idea of life. It seems to me in the Christian faith we have a unique combination of those two ideas. The idea of a Savior is not unique to Christianity, and the idea of living a good life and maybe even an eternal life is not unique to Christianity, but the concept of a living Savior is. And the Saviors are proclaimed, we think of Saviors in any number of ways, and they're proclaimed in any number of faiths. In the ancient world, there were those who believed that uh, the gods, nature gods, arbitrarily and somewhat capriciously could enter into the lives of people and save them from present distress. A God may save you from a famine, or a God may save you from some accident, or a God may save your life when you're ill. A God may save your crops. A God may save you at sea. And these would all be different gods. They are savior gods, but not gods that you can count on, not gods which are dependable, not gods that sustain a relationship with you, and not gods that regularly enter in and show sovereign control over creation and over your life, but gods that capriciously, arbitrarily, on the spot, as it were, to satisfy a whim, enter into your life and provide salvation. Other religions of the ancient world presented a concept of salvation that wasn't salvation from present distress in this life, but rather salvation from this life. The idea being that uh, our souls have been entombed in a uh, physical body, and the material world is evil in itself, and, and anything that's in contact with the material world is in the realm of darkness and evil and despair. So that these salvation religions taught release from the body and release from history, release from our current experience, so that we would go to be, as it were, abstract souls living in another world and not ever redeeming this material creation because it in itself is evil. That concept of salvation has been presented. In the ancient world, there was also alive a very important notion of salvation that we would consider political or military salvation. The Roman emperors were saviors and were declared to be saviors among their people and eventually deified for that reason because they had given Rome military might and ascendancy. Others in, in other cultures that delivered their people from 
attack or who led their people into attacking victory would be called saviors. So the concept of salvation was present in the ancient world and certainly with us today. We think of a soldier who in Vietnam throws himself upon a live grenade as a person who has saved his battalion. A man who, because of his love for his friends, has given himself self-sacrificially for the life of other people. Of course, that kind of savior leaves a lot to be desired. Obviously, the wife and family of the self-sacrificial savior are not going to be... They may be proud. They may be honored. They may hang up his medals of honor and remember his life, but of course, he's dead and he's gone. A dead savior is an inadequate savior. In our text, John, the 20th chapter, John, it seems to me, above all, of all the disciples, of all the theologians who write in the New Testament, celebrates the idea of a living Savior. And I want us to concentrate on that uh, this morning. I'm going to go through the text and just exposit it for a bit, draw your attention to two particular aspects of it. And then I want to look more in depth at the background of why John's theology of the resurrection is of particular importance to us if we're going to understand what the Bible teaches us. John tells us that it was on the first day of the week that Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb. It was yet dark. In fact, the fact that it was dark probably explains why Mary didn't see what Peter and John did eventually when they ran to the tomb. Probably was difficult um, for her to see. But when she does come to the tomb, she notes that the stone has been taken away. Someone has disturbed the grave of her Savior, or the one whom she had hoped would be her Savior. Now, you may ask yourself, why was Mary coming to the grave at all? The indication is she came, and other women with her came to embalm the body. However, we read in the other gospel accounts that there had been an embalming process hurriedly performed on Friday evening after the crucifixion, and that, in fact, Nicodemus had uh, donated a very large amount of embalming ointment for the body of Christ, a quite a sizable and expensive gift. And so you might say, why would more embalming have been thought necessary? I think the conclusion to be drawn by way of inference, maybe reading between the lines a bit, is that because of the lateness of the hour on Friday and because of the large amount of embalming perfume that was uh, donated, they were not able to finish the job. And remember, to a, uh, a law-abiding Jew, it would be crucial that they not be touching a dead body on the Sabbath. And so by uh, the time darkness fell, they would have to leave off their task. But now Mary comes back to finish the job, and she is shocked because they have taken away the body of the Lord. They have taken away the body. That ominous they. Who's they? People in general? She's afraid that somebody has just kind of come and... No, not people in general. The enemies of Jesus. And why would the enemies of Jesus want to take away the body? Well, for fear that the disciples might uh, raise some kind of a rebellion. You know, we have uh, uh, sit-ins and demonstrations and people go on marches at particular places remembering events or individuals that have been controversial, either in past history or presently in their experience in life. And uh, Mary must have thought that uh, the Jews had come to make sure Jesus would not be made an occasion for such an uprising, for such a demonstration. They have stolen his body. 
perhaps stolen it to desecrate it, to show all the more their hatred of this one that she thought was the Savior. And so she runs away immediately. And who does she run to? Simon Peter. That is fascinating to me in terms of character portrayals in the New Testament because Simon Peter had denied the Lord three times. Peter had wept bitterly the death of Christ, and yet he still looked up to as the leader of the band, as it were. And Mary goes running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And who was that? Well, the writer of this account himself, John, who was too humble to mention himself. And so he just says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John was a special friend to Jesus during his earthly life and ministry. She runs to these two and she says, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. And so Peter and John, they come running to the tomb. John outruns Peter. That's used often by New Testament scholars to prove that John was younger than Peter because he was able to beat him to the tomb. I don't know, John may not have been very athletic for all I know, and Peter was a fisherman and was just lumbering along. But the fact of the matter is John got there first and he looked in and he saw the grave clothes, but he doesn't enter into the tomb. There's a sense of hesitation, perhaps a sense of awe or maybe fear about entering in here, not knowing what is involved. Peter arrives on the scene. He doesn't hesitate. He just charges right into the tomb, which is true to Peter's impetuous character as the Bible portrays it to us. Nevertheless, inside the tomb, they find the linen cloths that had been used for uh, embalming and rolling up the body of Jesus. And the head cloth, aside by itself, rolled up. Uh, this was not the work of... Uh, of those who rob graves. People who rob graves don't take time to unroll the body from its grave clothes, much less to go over and to fold up the clothes when they're done. Okay, so it's a scene of orderliness, obviously. Something has taken place which hasn't been um, due to uh, some kind of excitement or some uh, quick, hasty plot, but the body's not there. The tomb is empty. And John tells us something here, which I think we need to concentrate on. He says, when he entered in, verse 8 says, Then entered in, therefore, the other disciple also, who came first to the tomb, and he saw and believed. That's conspicuous. John doesn't have to tell us that. But John emphasizes that he saw, and on the basis of what he saw, he believed. And why is that important? Because the whole point of this chapter is going to be at the very end. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. Thomas, the doubting disciple, takes a bad, uh, not a bad rap, he deserves it. But I mean, he has a lot of bad press because, after all, he's so doubtful. Well, that has always struck me as a bit unfair to Thomas because none of the disciples believed when they first heard. The whole point is that they all required some kind of eyewitness empirical experience before they were going to believe. And John says, and I was one of them. I had to enter in, and I saw, and I believed. And he points out immediately, verse 9, and this is, what I, this is one of the first of the two observations I want you to bear in mind this morning. For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. John's point is, they didn't believe on the basis of scripture. As yet they didn't understand that. They should have. That should have been the foundation. When the women came and said, the Lord's body's not there, they should have said, well, of course, he was going to rise from the dead, and he has. That's exactly what we expected. The whole Bible has taught us that. 
His whole life in ministry has led up to this. He has predicted this repeatedly. Of course he's going to rise, but they didn't. Peter and John run to the tomb wondering what has happened if they stole stolen the body. Is he going to be there? And John enters in, and then, seeing, he believes. For as yet they knew not the Scripture. We're going to come back to this. Verse 11, But Mary wasn't there. She was standing outside weeping. Apparently they laughed, and she continued to weep. They didn't see her and form her what they were thinking. And she stoops, and she looks back in, and now there are two angels there. And please don't have the wrong idea of angels. Angels don't all have wings. Cherubim and seraphim have wings, but they're only two of many ranks of angels. These angels were not um, conspicuous as heavenly messengers with uh, halos or uh, glowing, if you will, or with wings, whatever it takes for you to recognize an angel. John later recounts the story, and he knows they are angels. But Mary looks in there, two individuals standing in the tomb. You see, if she would have known they were angels, then that would have satisfied everything, right? She would have said, oh, well, God has, God's intervened here. That's why the body's not here. He is risen from the dead, but she doesn't. She just sees them, and because she takes Jesus to be a gardener, she probably thought they were just grave tenders of some sort, people who were assigned to be there. Maybe they were cleaning up after this. And the angels are, um, they're blessed creatures, you know. I, I wish we knew more about the psychology and thinking and reasoning pattern of angels. We don't. So we can only imagine here. But, you know, they say very tenderly, woman, why are you crying? See, the angels know what has gone on. And they know there's no foundation for fear or for sorrow, for disappointment. So what's wrong, woman? Why are you crying? And she doesn't uh, understand what has happened. She says that uh, they have taken away her Lord, and she doesn't know where they've laid him. And she turns around to leave, and she comes to an individual standing there waiting for her. And you want to know the power of preconception? She looks at Jesus and doesn't even recognize him. You know, Gestalt psychologists have taught us over the last few years in particular that people often see what they believe they will see. And the range of what they consider possible experience is governed by their own expectations and presuppositions. I may have told you this before, the common illustration of a gestalt experiment is when the deck of cards are flashed up on the screen one by one in order of suits. And what will happen is, after a person watches this two or three times, and they keep flashing them in order, in order, in order, then they'll put one out of place. And it can be an outlandish one out of place. You can get the ten of diamonds in the place of the trace of spades, and the person will not tell you that it's out of place. The person will see the trace, even though it's the ten, even though the colors have changed. They are so accustomed to it, and it's happening so quickly, they just see what they expect to see. Keep that in mind, by the way, when people tell you seeing is believing, because those of us who study philosophy and psychology realize that the other is true, too. Believing is sometimes seeing. Nevertheless, Mary doesn't yet believe in the resurrection. Mary doesn't know what has happened, and although she sees Jesus, because she doesn't expect that he's alive, she doesn't recognize him. 
Verse 15, Jesus says to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? Jesus says, Did you expect to find me dead after I had predicted my resurrection? After all the scriptures had taught you? After I was the one who raised Lazarus from the dead and declared I am the resurrection and the life, did you expect to find me here? Who are you looking for, woman? Why are you crying? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if you've borne him hence, tell me where they have laid him. You see how, how dogged her presuppositions are? She comes to the tomb and finds it empty. She doesn't say, Jesus is risen from the dead. She says, somebody has stolen the body. The angels are in the tomb. She still assumes that they might be able to tell her where the body is. And now she sees Jesus himself, and she's still saying, Well, are you the one who took the body away? Can you tell me where he is? And then you see the tender compassion of Jesus, who probably could have rebuked her, could have said, When are you ever going to learn, woman? You know, where is your faith? But he doesn't. He just looks at her and he calls her, her name. He says, Mary. And you can just see the ice break. And the clouds clear. And Mary says, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. He's alive. She says to him in Hebrew, which is an indication she falls back on her childhood tongue. She doesn't speak as the, as the Greeks have taught her, Rabboni, my teacher. Jesus said to her, don't touch me. Actually, the force of the Greek is, stop clinging to me, Mary. I haven't yet ascended, but I will ascend. Go and tell your brethren about these things and about my ascension. Then Jesus appears to the disciples next, John tells us. In the 19th verse, we begin the account of that evening. When all the disciples are together and the doors are shut for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in the midst thereof. Please remember what I told you long ago in my sermon on the ascension. That the passage does not say Jesus walked through the door. I don't mean to deny that Jesus has, as God, the ability to do whatever he wants to do. But, you know, Christians sometimes embellish these accounts and say, well, the doors were shut, so Jesus went through the door. Well, for all I know, he knocked on the door and said it was Jesus, and they opened it up. The point is simply that he was in their midst. He came to them, and he said, Peace be unto you. And he showed them his hands and his side, and they were glad. And Jesus commissions the disciples. He breathes the Holy Spirit upon them. He tells them they have the authority to forgive and to remit sins, things which we have learned in other Gospels and different settings as well. He repeats these things. But then John continues the strain of thought, but Thomas. But Thomas wasn't there, one of the twelve called Didymus. And the other disciples said unto him, we have seen the Lord. And here's Thomas. Boy, I'll tell you, he is the hardened empiricist. He's the man of scientific temperament. He says he will not believe unless he sees it. Unless, in fact, he puts his hands into the very print of the nails and touches Jesus' side, he won't believe. And so John continues. You know, there's so many things he could be telling us, but it's clear John is pursuing a theme. John has a point to be made. And so instead of just telling us, well, what happened on Monday and then on Tuesday and on Wednesday and all the rest, John says, and then eight days later, they were all together, and this time Thomas was with them, and Jesus comes, the doors were shut again, 
He stands in their midst. He says, peace be unto you. And now he speaks directly to Thomas. And he says, all right, Thomas, reach out your hand. Touch me. You see my hands? Touch my side. And Thomas answers unto him. I mean, these encounters in John the 20th chapter are just beautiful human portrayals. Because there is Jesus looking at at Mary, who doesn't believe, whose mind is so fogged, she doesn't even recognize him, and, she just, and he just says, Mary. And her reply, Rabboni. And now here's Thomas, after all this macho talk about he's not going to believe, you know, he's tough-minded and all that, and Jesus says, all right, Thomas, you wanted proof, here's the proof. Thomas can't take the proof. Thomas is overwhelmed, and all he can say is, my Lord, my God. You really are who you said you were. You're God Almighty. And Jesus said unto him, Because you have seen, you have believed. He doesn't say, Stop believing, or I'll have nothing to do with you. He says, All right, good as far as it goes. You have seen and you have believed, but blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who know that the Scripture had taught this all along and as part of their faith in God would expect that I'd rise from the dead. You see, you know that's John's point. And this is the second thing I want to point out about this passage. You know that's John's point because he says in verse 30, Many other signs, therefore, did Jesus in the presence of the disciples not written in this book. But these have been written. These have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John says, I've written these so that you'll believe on the basis of Scripture, not on the basis of what Thomas, or on the basis of what Mary, or even on the basis of what John himself required, empirical evidence that would satisfy them as somehow judges over the Word of God, people who think they can cast doubt upon what God had promised and predicted all along. And John tells us that believing, we have life in his name. Jesus, alive from the dead, now offers life in his name to us. So bearing these two things in mind, that the scripture is the foundation of resurrection faith, and that that faith brings us life even as Jesus himself is alive, I'd like to back up for a minute and show you the significance of John bringing these emphases before us. In the first place, in the Old Testament, life was understood very clearly and definitely was an emphasis of Old Testament theology that life derives from God and life is sustained by God. In Genesis 2 verse 7, God is the one who breathes life into man. And Job confessed, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. In Psalm 36 9, we read that in him is the fountain of life. And the psalmist says, he holds the soul in life. All of life, then you see, is dependent upon God. In Psalm 16, 11, we read that God shows men the path of life. Moses declared, he is your life. And according to the psalmist, Jehovah is the strength of my life. The psalmist says that he has made his prayer unto the God of my life. Indeed, God is the creator and the sustainer of any life and all life upon the earth, as we see this in Psalm 104, verses 27 to 30. Actually, if we had time, it'd be nice to read the entire psalm, because the psalmist takes time to go through the various areas of creation. He speaks of the grass that grows. He speaks of the mountain goats. 
He speaks of the fish in the sea and so forth. And then finally he comes to the 27th verse and says, These all wait for thee, that thou mayest give them their food in due season. Thou givest unto them, they gather. Thou openest thy hand, they are satisfied with good. Thou hidest thy face, they are troubled. Thou takest away their breath, they die and return to their dust. Thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created, and thou renewest the face of the ground. The psalmist says all of life, you see, depends upon God. God creates life, God sustains life, God takes it away when it dies. And so that Old Testament theological background is there. But John is especially the writer in the New Testament who picks up on this. Life, the subject of life, is characteristic as an emphasis in the Gospel of John. In fact, maybe I can illustrate and prove that point to you by just pointing out that the word life alone appears 36 times in John's Gospel. That's, um, I think, amazing in light of the fact there are only 21 chapters. I mean, it's obviously, it's coming up often enough, but that's the highest number of times the word appears in any New Testament book. Indeed, it's more than a quarter of all of the New Testament references to life put together. They appear in this gospel. By the way, John uses the word life 17 times in Revelation and 13 times in his first epistle, the epistle First John. So he clearly is the theologian of the New Testament of life. If you're going to write a theology of life, John would be the one who's behind it. By comparison, the next highest in the New Testament is 14. Paul, in the book of Romans, uses the word life 14 times. So 36 times John stresses life here. And I'd like to just go through the Gospel of John with me here as we uh, survey these very briefly. In John 1, verse 4, we read, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In the Word, in Christ himself, was life. John says life doesn't exist in its own right. Life doesn't have its own inherent power. It is only because there is first life in Christ that there is life in anything on earth. Life is communicated from Christ. Life is sustained by Christ. And this life which is in him is the light of men. One can't help but remember Psalm 36, 9, For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light we shall see light. Life and light are two important themes that John brings together in his gospel. But the point here at the very beginning is he says life is in Christ. And nothing has life apart from Christ. Outside of Christ is nothing but death and final judgment. And of course you know John 3.16. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In John, the fourth chapter, Jesus sees the woman at the well and he offers her living water. In John, the seventh chapter, he promises rivers of living water will well up with inside those who believe in him. In John, the fifth chapter, to back up a minute, in verse 25, Jesus declares that the time now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live full and ultimate life must take into account the spiritual character of man. John doesn't see life as just simply biological survival. He sees life in the fullness, in its genuine character, as having that biological side, but ultimately it has that spiritual dimension of a proper relationship with God. 
Those who are spiritually dead can find genuine and complete life only in the voice of the Son of God. In the very next verse, Jesus declares just as importantly that the Father has life in Himself. Only God is self-existent. Only God is independently sufficient unto Himself to have life as His characteristic attribute. No one else has life on his own terms. No one else has life in terms of his own abilities. No one else can sustain his own life. God alone has life in himself and is given to the Son also to have life in himself. In John 5 verse 40, he said, Jesus says to his enemies that they will not come to him in order that they may have life. In John the 6th chapter, he says, I am the living bread. If any man eats this bread, he shall live forever. Indeed, he says at that very point that he has given his flesh for the life of the world. In John 6, 54, Jesus is portrayed as saying, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. According to John, ask yourself this, according to John, why did Jesus come into this world? In John 10, verse 10, we have the answer. Jesus says, I have come in order that they might have... Are you beginning to get the point by now? Life, and have it more abundantly. John emphasizes it's not just life on the normal, human, mundane plane, but the more abundant life of that, having that depth of relationship with God that gives true joy and eternal dimension to life. In John 10, verse 18, Jesus proclaims that he has the power to lay down his life, and notice, the power to take it up again. The thought of death is immediately linked with that of resurrection. Christ will not only willingly give himself over to death, he says, he says he does so that he might rise again and triumph over death as the Lord of life. In John 10, verse 28, the assurance given to his sheep is, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Notice here first, that life is a gift. I give them eternal life. It's a gift from the Savior. But notice, secondly, that his gifts don't decay and they don't wear away. The life he gives will never end. And then John 11, a crucial chapter, really, for the whole theology John is developing, because Lazarus has died. And as the Lord of life, Jesus goes to the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. And it's at that time, just prior to this, that he declared to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes on me, though he die, yet shall he live, and whosoever lives and believes on me shall never die. See, Jesus is not simply the one who grants life from the dead. He is the life that is bestowed. He is the resurrection life. Death does not have final significance then. Death does not have eternal weight for the believer. although it must have so for those that are outside of Christ. The end of life, death, that says it all. But that's not the final word for the believer. For us, life is the present reality and life is the last word. Death is only a gateway to a fuller life and the death of the body will not be the termination of the body. Resurrection will be our destiny. And all of this, you see, it's so crucial. And John develops this, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. John 
17, in his high priestly prayer before he goes to the cross, Jesus prays, Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, so that to all whom you have given him, he should give eternal life. Life is not something men have in themselves, nor is it something which they can secure for themselves. Life is the predestined gift of a living Savior. Jesus said, as you've given me these people, then I will give them eternal life. And we, we leave John's gospel here, but just compare just three passages from the first epistle of John. Did you see how life, life, life is the theme of this apostle? John 5, verse 20, Jesus Christ is written of, and he says, This is the true God and eternal life. Or look at 1 John 5, 11, 12, God gave unto us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. One more comparison, 1 John 4, 9, God has given His only begotten Son, has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. John has rebuked himself in his own gospel when he says, And I walked into the tomb, and when it was empty, I believed. Because we didn't as yet understand the scriptures that He must rise from the dead. And John really learns his lesson, because when he goes back now to write, a gospel. What is at the heart of his gospel? A living Savior. A Savior who has life in himself. A Savior who gives eternal life to men. A Savior who is the resurrection and the life. A Savior through whom alone men can find life. Repeatedly, John points out that everything that Jesus is and stood for and taught should have led them to believe he couldn't be a dead Savior. You stop and think about that. Jesus, if he had died on the cross, would not have saved you from your sins. Jesus, if he had died on the cross, would have been a substitute. He would have been a sacrifice. He could have been an atonement as far as things go, but he could not have been a living Savior. He had to rise from the dead because of the very nature of life and what the Bible teaches us about it. Well, other religions offer salvation. You know that. And other religions boast of their saviors. Hinduism offers salvation by losing oneself completely in the all, just losing your personal identity and being spliced into everything that there is. And so there is no conscious life and there is no living savior in Hinduism. Buddhism has its savior. It has the Buddha and it has the Bodhisattvas, those who come back from the edge of nirvana to show us the way. But you know, all the Buddhas and all the Bodhisattvas have died. And if we believe Buddhist theology, they've all lost their personal identity in nirvana as well. There is no eternal conscious life of the soul, and there is no ever-living Savior in Buddhism. Ancient Rome, I told you, deified its emperors, called their military leaders saviors, but all of them have died. No living Savior. Confucius is a savior among many in China. But Confucius died. It is not a living savior. Islam had its prophet, Muhammad, but Muhammad died and is not a living savior. Shintoism worships the Japanese emperor as divine. But as you know, the Japanese emperors all died and are not living saviors. Theosophy teaches that there is a savior for each major sub-race in history. 
But none of the saviors of theosophy live on. They all die. The Marxists file past the body of Lenin in a mausoleum. They do not have a living savior. The glory of the Easter message and the uniqueness and power of Christianity is that we alone have a living savior. One who delivers us from the ultimate enemy, death. Revelation, the book of Revelation, caps off the theology of life that John has been seen to present to us, where John portrays Jesus declaring, I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but behold, I am alive forevermore and have the keys of death and of Hades. Notice how he takes that title, the living one. No Buddha can say that. No Mohammed can say that. Only Jesus can say, I am the living one. And in the kingdom, an eternal city where Christ grants undying life to his people, Revelation tells us that there is a river of living water that goes out to water and to sustain the tree of life. And in that blessed city, the all-powerful words of comfort which will be declared by God, according to Revelation 21, is that death shall be no more. The message of the book of uh, John and the first epistle of John and Revelation is all consistent. We have a living Savior who has vanquished death. And that's what we're celebrating this morning. That's what brings us here this Easter morning, to celebrate life. Not life in the pagan sense that the birds are singing and the flowers are blooming and all that kind of thing. Life in the deepest sense. That those of us who are under the power and the bondage of death, those of us who would be condemned because of our sin and rebellion against God, those of us who would know nothing but eternal despair and the second death on the day of judgment, can now say, because Jesus lives, so shall I. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we love you and just praise you from the bottom of our hearts that we don't remember you as a past historical figure, but we can be related to you as a living Savior. We thank you that in your life you have vanquished death, that it might no longer tyrannize us and be our last enemy. We thank you that even in death we may know you in eternal life and live in the hope and assurance that one day our bodies, too, will rise from the grave, even as yours has. And we shall know you in the eternal splendor of life evermore. How we thank you for giving us such a faith, so unique and so powerful, so different from all the others, in that it gives to us life from a living Savior. And we praise your name and pray in it. Amen.